Welcome to Restitutio, a podcast dedicated to recovering authentic Christianity and living it out today. I'm your host, Sean Finnegan. It's so easy to universalize our own local context, isn't it? For example, I live in a secular, post-Catholic part of New York State. Not that we don't have other belief systems like evangelicals and Jewish people and Muslims, but generally it's mostly post-Catholic. There are some real practicing Catholics too, but secularism is huge where I live in New York State. And it would be easy for me to think that most of the state or country or even world is just like my area. However, this ethnocentric perspective will not do justice to the data we have about Christians in the world today. Now, I'm sure some of my listeners who live in the southern part of the United States have a very opposite perspective. They might think that because they are surrounded by Christians that the whole world is just totally and completely full of Christians. But if you live in Turkey or the Sudan or Saudi Arabia, you would have a very different perspective of what religion is popular and so on. So this is really the need I see for getting at good data about Christianity in the world today. And we're going to get to that data in this episode here today. I wonder, what do you think? Do you think Christianity is shrinking, growing, or staying the same? My intuition, based on my own personal area where I live, is that Christianity is, in fact, shrinking. And that accords with the long-held secularization thesis prominent among sociologists. That's the idea that world religions weaken and then die out as societies improve in education, technology, and healthcare. But is this what we see happening globally? Join me in this episode as we explore the data from a number of sources to get a lay of the land. How popular is Christianity today? And how can what we discover help your confidence in the faith? Here now is episode 389, Why Christianity Part 2, Lay of the Land. Part 2, Lay of the Land. I thought it would be helpful to give a lay of the land because it's, it's easy to universalize our own experience and what we think Christianity and what we think the world is like. So I thought we'd start with New York State. This is a religious landscape study from the Pew Research Center. And you can see that in New York State, you know, within, I think maybe 2014 or so, so within 10 years, uh, we've got Christianity at 60%. About half are Catholics, half are non-Catholics. And then you have non-Christian faiths. Not a big surprise that Jewish is number one among non-Christian faiths in New York State. Then you have Islam and Buddhism, Hinduism. And then you have unaffiliated is 27%. And this is the category they call the nuns. So on a survey, when you could pick different religions, they, they check the box that says none. This is another representation of that same data. So we have Christianity at 60% in New York State today. And then, you know, the real big up-and-coming category is this one that's called unaffiliated. As a result of that, our context here, for those of us who are here in New York State, is very secular. We live in a very secular place. 
In fact, the Capital Region area was identified in 2013 by the Barna Group as the most post-Christian city in the United States. So uh, we have that designation. And uh, so it's easy to, to think that, well, because my friends, because my coworkers, because my, the people I regularly interact with think a certain way or, or approaching faith in a certain way, that therefore that's the way the world is. And so I want to just give a little bit of a, a landscape and look at, this is the United States here, a comparison of two Pew surveys, one from 2007 and one from 2014. And what we see in this is that Christianity fell from 78% to 70%, or 71, if you round up. And at the same time, the religiously unaffiliated have really shot up from 16% all the way up to 22% in the United States overall. So that was big news when that survey came out that this, this one group is really jumping up. It's interesting to note that among Christians in these three major categories, you've got Catholics, which are declining in the United States. They dropped from 54 to 51 million during the same period. And the mainline Protestants who have tend to take a more liberal approach to Scripture, also dropping precipitously. They've been dropping for a long time, actually. And yet the number of evangelicals, the people who strongly believe in the Bible, are actually growing, but just not quite growing at the same pace as the overall population. So the percentage shrank just a hair, but there were actually two or three million people added to that group. So uh, really some interesting stuff happening in our time, and I'm actually encouraged by it. You'll see in a, in a minute why. But before I do that, I want to talk to you about the secularization thesis. Uh, this is from a book called Sacred and Secular by Norris and Engelhart. They write, the seminal social thinkers of the 19th century, Augusta Comte, Herbert Spencer, Emile Durkheim, Max Weber, Karl Marx, and Sigmund Freud all believed that religion would gradually fade in importance and cease to be significant with the advent of industrial society. Have you heard that before? That mindset, extremely common. They go on. They were far from alone. Ever since the Age of Enlightenment, leading figures in philosophy, anthropology, and psychology have postulated that theological superstitions, symbolic liturgical rituals, and sacred practices are the product of the past that will be outgrown in the modern era. It's a little bit of an arrogant way to put it, don't you think? That uh, those people who have faith in miracles or that attach significance to any kind of ritual, that this is sort of childish superstition. These are, these are the big-time sociologists of, of religion and sociologists in general that are saying this throughout the last century. They write, the death of religion was the conventional wisdom in the social sciences during most of the 20th century. Indeed, it has been regarded as the master model of sociological inquiry. Uh, so this is, this is the introduction of their book. So the question is, well, why are they writing this book? Because in 2010, religion, whether Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, as, as far as the top three go, is doing extremely well. In fact, it's growing. And so they wrote this book as a response to the failure of the secularization thesis. This thesis has uh, demonstrably proven to be false. So these are the stats for what people believe in the world from 2010. I'll give you the, the source for this. This is the Pew Templeton Project. 
And they have Christianity by far in first place at over 2 billion people on the planet. 2.1 billion, 2.2. And then you have Islam at 1.6 billion. And then in third place, you've got this, these nuns, right? The non-religious people, the nuns. Third place, 1.13. And then you have in uh, fourth, you have the Hindus at a billion or so. And then it goes down from there. Buddhists, folk religions, other religions, Jews. So what I love about this Pew Templeton project is that they did projections for the future, right? And these are not sociologists per se. They're, they're statisticians. They're demographers. They're people that like to count things. So they're like, you know what? Let's do data for 2010, 2020, 2030, 2040, 2050, and we'll extrapolate it out and we'll see where we think everything is going to end up. So they start in 2010. You can see Christianity is 31.4%. In second place, you have Islam at 23%. And then in third place, you have the Hindus, and then you have the unaffiliated at 1 billion or so. All right, then you have very slight change. So that's 2020. Christianity is about the same. Islam is a little bigger. If you notice that, the green got bigger. And then in the next decade, 2030, now unaffiliated has dropped into fourth place instead of being in third place. By 2040, they're shrinking even more as Islam continues to expand and Christianity holds steady until we get to the year 2050. I mean, who knows if any of this is really going to happen. But these, these, this is just like if you take the current trends, this is where it's headed. Christianity is actually the same exact percentage as it was in 2010 and 2050. Of course, there's a lot more people. So it has to grow a significant amount in, in proportion to the population rate. Islam really jumped ahead from... 23% to almost 30, but the, the unaffiliated went from 16% down to 13%. So that's the opposite of the secularization hypothesis. The data in their Western European social scientist theory, they don't match. What are we going to drop here? I mean, the data is the data, so you've got to drop your theory and see that this is, you know, at least as far as Christianity is concerned, Christianity is the big show today. That's the biggest piece of the pie, the red, right? That's Christianity, 31%. And Christianity, as far as the year 2050 goes, is still the big show, right? I mean, so there's something, there's something about that. It doesn't mean it's true, obviously. Like, popularity doesn't guarantee an idea is true, does it? Uh, you could have a lot of people believe something dumb, right? But there is something noteworthy about the fact that Christianity is absolutely dominant on the world stage. And so this is good news if you're a Christian. It's nice to be on the winning team. It's also you know, something that's important for non-Christians. So if somebody somebody's watches who's not a Christian at some point, hey, th this is not going anywhere. This, this faith that we, we have is not going, if anything, it's going to grow. And so... I think it would do people well to see what Christianity is and understand what it's all about, even if you don't believe in it, just so you can interact better and understand what's going on. So, I mean, to be clear, I'd be a Christian if it was just me and Jesus. You know, I'm not a Christian because there are two billion other Christians, and I just want to have a lot of friends or something. I believe in Christianity because, because I, I believe it's true. I believe it's true. Like Jerry said, I think it answers the big questions about where we came from, where are we going? What's the meaning of life? How do I live? What's the good life? What's, what's right and wrong? These kinds of daily important things. You know, what's the purpose of my life? 
Where do I find meaning and satisfaction? I believe that the Christian answer to those questions is deeply satisfying in a way that other isms, other belief systems, you know, some of them are, 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 have strengths in certain areas, but I believe Christianity has a total package that is really impressive. So anyhow, I appreciate the fact, as Jerry shared, that there has been a cultural shift because it means there are fewer fakers. Look, when Christianity was just the way that everybody thought you should live, you have a lot of people that just go with the flow. They're going to show up on Sunday because, hey, that's what you do on Sunday, and if you don't, what are people going to say? There have been periods and places in the world where that's just the way it is. That's not the case anymore. The people who are Christians today and who are saying, yeah, I believe this, and they show up on a Sunday, it's because they believe it. It's because it's real. <laughs> so uh, what we've really seen in the, in the stats is that the sort of softer forms of Christianity that are more like culturally integrated and more taking a liberal view of Scripture and, and not 100% on board with everything that the Bible says, these, these are losing millions of people, whereas the really crunchy, robust, I believe in miracles, prayer works form of Christianity, I believe the Bible is inspired and authoritative form of Christianity, is growing and growing and growing in America and around the world. So it's here to stay. And so I started asking the question, well, why is that? You know, it seems a little strange to me. So I look at these, some of these verses. Look at this one in Colossians chapter 1, verse 19. It says, For in Him, Colossians 1, 19, in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. This to me is a big verse. This is not a small verse. I realize it doesn't take that many words to say it. But the, the, this is a big verse. This is saying something very, very big. The cross of Christ here is not just a historical event. It's not just something that happens in first century Judea. It's not just something that's relevant to the Jewish followers of Jesus. The cross here, look at this verse again, is cosmic, is big. First of all, we start in verse 19. It says that God, all the fullness of God, was in Christ. God was fully indwelling Christ and working through Christ, speaking through Christ. And what was God doing in and through Christ? Verse 20, it says, God was in Christ reconciling to himself all things. It's not even just people. Like, through Christ, the Creator, the Almighty, is accomplishing a reconciliation, a bringing back into relationship with himself of everything in heaven and on earth. I mean, these are big words here. This is a big claim for Christianity to make, that Christ is not just an example of how to live. He's not just somebody who we admire and draw inspiration from. No, he's somebody in whom God himself was at work through the cross, in particular here, making peace by the blood of the cross, such that as a result of the Christ event, the world itself, heavens and the earth, the whole thing, all things, tapanta in Greek, all of it is now changed. There's a change, and it's not, it's not a change for the Jews. It's not a change for the Greeks. It's not a change for the Romans. It's a change, period, full stop, all things. And then you compare that with Ephesians 1.9 where it says, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, 
things in heaven and on earth. I love this word unite. I was working with Jerry on this verse the other day, and he pointed out the Greek word for this, and it's got many syllables, so I'm going to try not to stumble here. Ana kephaleosaste. Not bad, not bad. Uh, it's from the word ana kephaleoo, which means to sum up under one head. It's, it literally means uphead. Uh, so uh, kephale is the Greek word for, for head. So uh, it's, it's, it's bringing everything under the headship of Christ. I mean, look at this, verse 10 again, Ephesians 1.10. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ. That's what God's doing. God had his mystery, his purpose. Nobody really knew what was going on. And then God revealed it. He brought it about. He accomplished it in Christ. He summed up everything under the headship of Christ, uniting all things in Christ, things in heaven and on earth. I mean, whatever your theology of all the sub-points here that fall under this, whatever you think they mean, this is a big statement. This is a universal claim, a universal Christian claim that in Christ, something has been inaugurated. Something has already been inaugurated. This is the way George Eldon Ladd puts it. It's been inaugurated, but it's not yet consummated. Okay, so you have the already inaugurated and the not yet consummated. So in Christ, things in, in a spiritual sense have completely changed. And those who are also then in Christ experience that change. But we wait until the age to come when it's fully consummated and brought to be a universal truth on earth. All right, let's take a look at another one of these. Colossians chapter 2, verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Emphasis on verse 3 there. Take a look at that. In Christ are hidden all the treasures. I mean, he's not holding back here, is he? All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. These things are in Christ. As Nancy Piercy would say, in Christ, we don't have partial truth. We don't just have religious truth. We don't have just something that affects our belief about what's right and wrong, our sense of morality in Christ. No, we have total truth. That's the name of Nancy Piercy's book, Total Truth. It's the idea that Christianity doesn't just sort of like help you do one little aspect of your life better. Like, you know, be a Christian because then you'll, you'll, you'll have more success at your job. No, I mean, it's total truth. I mean, look at that statement. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's a big statement. I mean, it could be false. If, if you don't believe in Christ or you don't believe in his resurrection, I understand you might, you might think it's false. But if this is true, it's a big statement about who Christ is and what his effect is on the world. And that's what we're going to be looking at in this class. We want to take a look under the hood. Okay, so like think of Christianity as a car, as a vehicle. You know, we're, we're not going to so much talk about the color of the, of the body or whether it has air conditioning. We're going to go under the hood and we're going to look at the different parts. We're going to get our hands dirty and uh, we're, going to, we're going to look at how each of the different parts of the faith work together and uh, what the other options are in our society that people try and how they work, you know, so we can... We can compare the Christian way of doing things to other ways of doing things or thinking, or we could talk about science or ethics or a lot of different areas of knowledge. But I think what we're going to see over and over is that 
In Christ, God has hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And then I have this one other verse here that I want to read with you. It's Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. It says, Therefore God has highly exalted Christ. God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. I mean, look at how these big universal words, right? Above every name, so that every knee would bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, in case we weren't sure like what every meant, right? So wherever you are, get, go ahead and get in a spaceship, you still should bow the knee to Jesus. Get in a submarine, same thing, right? Verse 11, and every tongue, there's the every again, right? Confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The big punchline here is this statement that they would confess, they bow the knee and they confess Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ here is used as a name, right? Christ, we understand, is, means Messiah, it's a title. But what are they saying about him? They're saying that he is Lord. That's the confession. What does it mean, Lord? It means that he's in charge, he's sovereign, he's supreme. Okay, now, even if, those stats I showed you, 31% of the people who claim to be Christian really are Christian, which of course, as Christians, we know that's not true, uh, <laughs> sadly. But um, even if that were true, you still have two-thirds of the world's population that do not recognize Jesus as Lord today. So this verse is not yet fulfilled, is it? Not even close. But... This is the aim. This is the goal. This is, this is what we believe will eventually happen to the whole world is that God's going to establish His kingdom when He has everyone recognize His designated ruler as Lord. Now, Christians, we are those who are recognizing that already now. We're already getting on board with this truth on the basis of what God's already done in Christ in the past to believe that this is also going to happen in the future. And so we can, we can be in this reality now as Christians. This is the reality we are embracing and one day anticipate to happen in the world. All right, some more maps. I want to talk about geographic distribution. Remember, I'm trying to give you a lay of the land. Okay, I just want to situate ourselves, understand the way the world is, and how Christianity lines up, because sometimes it's easy to just have our own focus in our own little corner of the world. This is a representation of where Buddhists live in the world. All right, so this right here is Myanmar, also called Burma. And then you have Thailand. And this one over here is Cambodia. And over here is Laos. We've got Mongolia up here. There's lots of Buddhists in China, right? But China's so dense that it's not that much of a percentage, okay, overall. So that's where, that's where Buddhism is. It's in this, this, this really narrow, in Sri Lanka, sorry, I kind of covered that one over. That's that little island off of uh, India there, Sri Lanka. So this is, where, this is where Buddhism is in the world. You can see it's very isolated geographically. Now we look at Hinduism. Where's Hinduism? Oh, it's in India. Remember there's an old uh, name for it, India, wasn't it Hindustan? Wasn't that like a name for it? So the word Hindu and in, in, uh, India are kind of related, I guess. But uh, in India, you have a lot of Hindus. And as it turns out, there's just a lot of people in India, uh, well over a billion. And uh, I think they're projected to beat China in the, in the future as far as population. So, uh, you know, if you get India, you've got, you've got a world religion 
right there. You know? uh, it's over three times the United States, uh, maybe four times the United States in population. So, and then some, uh, some of these countries in, I'm not sure what those countries are, in South America there have, is that Guyana? Yes, yeah, uh, Hindu and, but again, very, very limited geographically, right? Then we look at Islam. Islam is the second largest religion. You can see that it's, it's dominating in North Africa. Most of that part of North Africa there is the Sahara Desert, uh, which, which you probably would be able to see if you looked at a satellite view. Uh, that it's, it's not a very populated area, although along the coast you do have more significant cities. Then the Saudi Arabian Peninsula, you've got Turkey there, and all the way out to Iran, and a couple of countries north. And then over in the... Um, the Pacific here, Indonesia, is super Muslim. Uh, but you can see that, it's, again, it's relatively speaking an isolated geographical area where Islam flourishes. Now take a look at Christianity. That's weird. I mean, I just showed you the other world religions. This is weird. Why is Christianity so spread around? And you can see that the only area where Christianity doesn't have a higher percentage is in the Islamic areas, and then you also have in the Hindu, uh, India, and then in China. It seems like everywhere else, Christianity is just really spreading like crazy, or at least holding on in some different ways. I was thinking about China. You know, it's really hard to get stats on China, for religion especially, don't you think? Uh, but I came across this article from The Telegraph, April 2014. A guy, Tom Phillips, writes... China on course to become world's most Christian nation within 15 years. The number of Christians in communist China is growing so steadily that by 2030, it could have more churchgoers than America. But a lot, a lot of the Christians in China, having you know, met some people that know Christians in China, they're under, uh, undercover. They're not raising their hand up to be counted when the guy comes around. It's like, how many Christians are over here? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I thought this was a communist town. What are you talking about? You know? If Christianity wins the day in China, which very well may happen, I mean, it would just put it way over the top, and all these stats would get tilted much further towards the Christian perspective. One of our theologians here, Matthew Elton, uh, who sent me these maps, he wrote the following. I came across some maps that do a beautiful job of illustrating an extremely unusual aspect of Christianity its ability to cross national, racial, and cultural boundaries versus other major religions that are identified with one nation, race, or culture. In my opinion, this is one of the main reasons why Christianity is true. If God exists and if he truly created the whole world, it doesn't make sense that he would only be concerned with one race, nation, or people group. Yet almost all the other religions are localized in this way. Of course, you could make a counter-argument about God's election of the Jewish people, but as Christians, we know that the election of the Jews was never meant to be an end in itself, but God always intended it as a means through which he would reach the world. Paul makes this point in Romans 9-11, through 11, citing evidence from the Old Testament. So, Christianity has this unusual characteristic about it that it is transcultural, transnational, Transracial, translingual, if that's a word. I'm just making up words. Trans means cross, so it's across the nations, across the different areas. And there, there's something 
even if you don't, even if you don't believe in Christianity at all, you'd have to say there's something about it that a lot of people from very different backgrounds find appealing in a way that other world religions don't have you know, the this, this same pull or the same success. Uh, and so I was thinking of an analogy for this, because you know, people will say, oh, well, it's just uh, these, the colonialism perpetuated by Western missionaries. That's what it is. Yeah, those, those Western missionaries, are, you know, it's like, come on. So much of this work is indigenous. So much of it is. But I was thinking of an analogy for it to talk about the attractiveness of Christianity, the appeal of it. And I have, I have two examples for you. I have, I have mayonnaise and I have the wheel. And my question is, is Christianity more like mayonnaise or is it more like the wheel? And raise your hand if you like mayonnaise in this room. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So about two-thirds of the people in the room like mayonnaise. Uh, One-third don't. So the, the not liking mayonnaise people, I guess, would be the Christians for this analogy here because there's about one-third of them <laughs> in the world. So like mayonnaise, you know, it's the sort of thing like some people like it, some people don't like it. And if, and if you like it, okay, good for you, whatever. Just don't oppose it on the rest of us. I happen to love mayonnaise. So... Then there's the wheel. Can you live without the wheel? Sure, you can live without the wheel. I mean, you just have to carry everything. You know, and you, you probably have a small house, you know, of some sort of lumber or, or mud bricks that you could transport without using anything with wheels. I mean, you could survive without the wheel. It wouldn't be easy. But you could survive without the wheel. You know why? Because and the thing about the wheel is, it's not like there's a Chinese wheel and there's an African wheel, and then there's a Russian wheel. No, like, the wheel is just a circle that carries stuff, you know? <laughs> like, it's a universally good idea, so it appeals to people from all different places. And so that's really the question is, is Christianity more like mayonnaise, or is it more like the wheel? And I, I'm here to tell you that I believe it's more like the wheel. I think it's something that is universally helpful for humans and makes sense of life, and it really does connect you to God. And so I'm, I'm with Jesus. Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Think about those three statements for a moment. The way, the truth, and the life. If you have the way, you have the truth, you have the life. I mean, you're, what else do you want? <laughs> you know? I mean, this is a total package. And so Jesus himself claims, this is John 14, 6, to be the total package. That if, if you want to understand truth, you go, you go to Jesus. If you, if you want to understand the way to live, if you want to have life, not only now, but also in the age to come, you go to Jesus. So I'm convinced that the Christian life is better, it makes more sense, it's more intellectually satisfying, and it's more exciting with Jesus. But of course, we've made a number of assumptions, even just now and, and, and previously, about God's existence, about the Bible being true. We're just reading verses out of it as if it's absolutely divinely inspired, and we haven't established any of that. So what we're going to do next time is uh, we're, we're going to start working on those things and start to build a little bit of a positive case to explain our reasons for why we think there is a God, why we think that you should not feel foolish for believing in God's existence, and uh, look at why do we believe in the Bible, and why do we believe that Jesus really is who he says he is. Well, how do we know God raised him from the dead, singling him out as the one person in all of human history in whom is hidden all wisdom and knowledge? Well, that's it for this episode. If you have a comment or question 
or criticism, please come on to restitutio.org and find episode 389, Lay of the Land, and leave your comment there. It's always so encouraging to hear from people and really helpful when people offer corrections as well. So look forward to hearing your thoughts on restitutio.org. Also, if you haven't yet, why not join the Facebook group? Uh, Just look up Restitutio on Facebook, and you'll be able to find us that way. Or, of course, I have links on the website, restitutio.org. On our last episode, Why Christianity Part 1, the introduction with Jerry Werewell, H.J. Kerr wrote in on the website saying, Looking forward to this. Thanks for the great intro, Jay. I read about postmodernism and see how education, government, media, entertainment, and even parts of Christianity have been taken over and whence it seems so much harder to fight than atheism or secular humanism. Well, Kerr, I appreciate that observation, and and that's really a shift that we've seen. We did have an apologetics class on this podcast back in 2016. It went through a program of defending our faith over against secularism, naturalism, atheism, and these kinds of scientific critiques of Christianity, historical critiques of Christianity. And what we see now is that we are moving into a whole new kind of culture where we need a new kind of apologetic, a new kind of way of explaining and giving reasons for our faith to those who are outside of our faith and who are either curious or antagonistic or interested, and we want to be able to share why Christianity is so appealing to us, why we are still Christians amidst all the criticisms against us, why it still makes sense, why it still works for us, and why we think it will work for others. And so this really is a class designed to do that, and I hope it'll help you in your faith as well. Well, that's it for today. Come on to restitutio.org and leave a comment, or you can support this ministry on the website as well. We'll see you next week, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.